Hello, and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we'll be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the May 17th edition of Macro Minutes. The epic movements and volatility of various asset classes uh, continues unabated. But as the uncertainty around monetary policy outcomes starts to narrow, uh, there is a glimmer of hope that assets can find their footing and start behaving uh, more normally. But for now, it's been another uh, poor couple of weeks for equities and credit. Uh, The dollar has retraced modestly but remains uh, very strong, while government bonds have recovered uh, sharply from their weakest levels. And to help us navigate this uh, treacherous landscape, we have with us today uh, Simon, Blake, uh, Peter, Adam, uh, Michael, and Amy. Uh, so along with the usual thick topics, uh, Michael's going to um, speak about oil and Amy on uh, equity derivatives. Um, I'm going to kick it off today and discuss uh, three topics. Uh, the first one um, I want to mention is the massive uh, portfolio VAR shock that's occurred this year and the unusual situation that we witnessed in the day after the FOMC meeting. Um, So on May 5th, um, we did see a 3% down day for the S&P and a 1% down day for 10-year treasuries. Uh, This has only happened on six other occasions back to 1990, with the most recent being uh, the COVID crisis, uh, GFC, and the 2001 uh, tech uh, collapse. So a traditional 60-40 portfolio, it's down about 11% in the past six months, And while this might not sound like a large number, you might be surprised if I told you that in March 2020 and the depths of the uh, 2001 tech bubble bursting, um, it was also down 11%. Uh, During GFC, it was much larger. Uh, 60-40 portfolio was down 25%. And the reason that we're seeing this large drawdown now um, is due to the unusual correlation between stocks and bonds that's occurred over the past six months, uh, which is something that we've never seen uh, over the past uh, 30 to 40 years. But um, there are signs uh, that the higher uh, bond yield and lower equity correlation is starting to shift. Um, So it was all about inflation. uh, That was driving rates, but now growth are starting to uh, percolate uh, more visibly. And in the past few days, uh, when stocks were down, uh, bond yields actually fell. Um, So bonds can regain their typical relationship with stocks um, against the backdrop of um, you know, the Fed not considering, uh, at least right now, policy moves greater than 50 basis points, um, it would probably limit the upside in yields and create some space for them to fall further from here. Uh, which leads into my last point that the worst of the bond market route is uh, probably in the rearview mirror. Um, if inflation remains high and sticky and central banks need to tighten beyond current market pricing, then it could get worse, but that's not our base case scenario. Um, So we do think that yields are probably peaked um, across the belly and long end of the curve in Canada and the U.S., with the balance of risk pointing to modestly uh, lower levels from here. So for the long end to materially rise, I think, would require um, a decent increase in terminal value uh, pricing. So as the uncertainty bands around uh, the central bank policy path uh, start to narrow um, and yields, um, you know, stabilize somewhat, so they have been volatile, but over the past uh, month, uh, the 10-year bond yield is basically flat. Um, you know, there's going to be some investors that are the natural duration buyers and that like to carry uh, getting back into the market. So coupled with um, inflation and growth fears uh, probably coming off the boil, um, growing discussion in, in the market and retail circles about recession, um, you know, our forecasts have longer-term yields, um, you know, stagnating to falling slightly uh, through uh, the end of the year. The front end, uh, that should remain stickier uh, than the long end. 
um, as central banks deliver further rate hikes and uh, the front end of the curve gets uh, pulled towards uh, the policy rate outcomes. Uh, we do think curves should be biased towards flattening, uh, less in Canada uh, compared to the U.S., and volatility uh, should remain elevated until inflation uncertainty uh, subsides. Uh, with that, I'll pass it over to Feynman for some additional color on Canada. Thanks, Jason. Uh, so I'll go through our updated call for the Bank of Canada. Uh, this was out last week. Uh, so we now see the, the bank hiking 50 basis points twice more, uh, so at the next two meetings in June and July. Uh, and that would take the overnight rate to the bottom of their neutral range, which is 2 to 3%. Inflation, as with elsewhere, has been more, has been more persistent, and uh, we do see it averaging uh, 6.7% year-on-year uh, in Q2. That should be the, the print in tomorrow's April report, and that was the last print in March as well. In addition to inflation, we have seen the demand side uh, quite firm in Q1, well above expectations are RBC Economics at 4.5% in the latest forecast, the Bank of Canada at 5.6% uh, in their April NPR, which matched uh, earlier nowcast from StatsCan. Uh, and also, we have a very tight labor market, 5.2% employment rate in April, and that's uh, as low as, as it's been in multiple decades. Uh, after hitting 2% uh, in July, uh, we, we expect two more hikes, but we expect them to ship down to 25 basis point increments, the more normal increment uh, in September and October, and that would get them to 2.5%, and that's where we expect them to stop, as we expect inflation to have slowed and growth risks to become more prominent um, from higher inflation and also the the tightening that has already been done. Market pricing has come down, but is still above our forecast, so uh, it has been above as high as above 3%. It's more around 280 to 285% right now by year end. So again, above our forecast, but uh, has come down from peak levels. As Jason noted, we think we have hit yield peaks, um, and we do expect GOC term yields to kind of flat, to flatten, to move lower over the, the next six months, uh, ending the year around 2.6%, and we expect actually a perfectly flat curve at that time uh, across term yields at that level. And with that, I'll shift back to Jason. Okay, great, Simon. Uh, thanks a lot. Now over to Blake for his views on the Treasury market. Yeah, hey, Jason. Um, look, I mean, my comments are going to um, mirror yours to a large extent. Um, you know, I think uh, basically since CPI, since the FOMC last week, we've continued to see the kind of hump that existed in the Fed pricing curve. Uh, if you look at OIS, um, you know, this kind of <clears> – <throat> Big ramp up to kind of a you know 330 340 type of terminal rate in early 2023, and then a sharp um, turn back down towards lower rates at the end of 2023 into 2024. That hump has started to um, uh, uh, um, largely grind lower, and we've got a, a more smooth path being priced in um, since both of those events. Um, terminals now hovering around three percent. Uh, we've got 50s uh, more or less priced for June and July. September's more of a toss-up. Uh, it's around a 50-50 chance for either a 50 or a 25. And 75 basis point hikes have largely been priced out. There's only a very small probability remaining in the kind of June meeting. Um, on September, on, on the September uh, meeting specifically, and what, the question of whether it's a 50 or 25, um, it was having an interesting discussion with our inflation, inflation trader yesterday who pointed out that the um, August CPI fixing, which is going to be the last one before uh, that September FOMC meeting, 
um, is still being priced somewhere around 8%. Um, you know, that's still a very high print. Um, and, you know, this is above what is likely implied by the Fed's uh, March forecast that they published with the SEP at the March FOMC meeting. Uh, and, and also might argue that a 50 basis point hike in September should, um, you know, be priced with a higher probability. Um, I do think this, you know, kind of opens up an interesting question, specifically about the September meeting on whether kind of a 25 basis point hike in September is the base case and the Fed needs to see, you know, some kind of significant upside surprises on inflation, um, you know, over the coming months uh, to prompt a 50 or whether the base case is more continued to do 50s until they get overwhelming evidence that inflation is headed back lower. Um, you know, I, I kind of lean towards the former. Um, you know, I, I think <laughs> right now the base case is probably that they will step down to 25 in September and that, um, you know, we, it's really going to take some upside inflation surprises here to, to get that uh, conversation about a 50 or, or even speeding up to 75s uh, going in any kind of earnest. Um, just kind of moving out the curve, I mean, along with this repricing in the Fed, um, you know, we've got 10s pretty comfortably back below 3%. Um, they seem to be uh, relatively steady there. Um, you know, I still lean bullish from here on rates. As I wrote out of the uh, FOMC meeting, you know, I kind of maintain that we're, we're at the end of this large paradigm shift where we essentially went from having nothing priced into the Fed, um, you know, a, a terminal rate of one and a quarter, 150 that wasn't coming until some, sometime in the 2025, uh, 2026 range, uh, to, you know, having this entire hiking path laid out before us uh, that, that essentially completes by 2023. Um, you know, with the end of that um, paradigm shift, um, you know, I, th I think what's currently priced for the Fed path is going to start to stabilize uh, unless we get some kind of big surprises in the data. Again, you know, if we see some continued big upside surprises in inflation, that will obviously be something the Fed has to adjust to. But that's something that's probably, um, you know, a, a couple months story. And I think there would need to be several prints that really, uh, you know, kind of push the Fed in that direction. Um, with clarity around the Fed growing, you know, I expect volatility to start to ease and become much uh, less directional, unlike the last four or five months when volatility has almost continuously carried us towards higher rates. Um, and that this stabilization should improve the carry environment and kind of encourage the return of, you know, a lot of the domestic and foreign real money buyers who, who have essentially been sitting on the sidelines. On top of this, I think uh, investor sentiment and, and investor attention has really started to turn away from this kind of Fed story and, and um, you know, kind of debating and, and trading around uh, the shape of the hiking path and become much more focused on the potential for a slowdown or recession into 2023. Uh, I was in Boston talking to a lot of investors last, um, last week. And through all those conversations, I was kind of surprised at how little uh, people actually seem to bring up the Fed path, whereas, you know, two or three weeks ago, that was all anyone wanted to talk about. Um, that's basically taken a back seat, and, and it's really more about uh, expectations for slowdown or recession in 2023. Importantly, the last thing I'll say, importantly, I, I don't think that these concerns about slowdown recession are heavy enough yet that the markets have really started to call into question the Fed path is currently priced in. I say that's important because, um, you know, as long as this current Fed path um, sticks and we, we get those recession fears starting to pick up, that still, um, you know, tends to, to, to push the curve flatter um, versus, you know, if, if we really start to call into question the hiking back to price then and start taking out those hikes and, and, fur and further pushing down uh, terminal expectations, that's something that could turn into a steepener. So something to keep an eye out. Um, and that's, that's it for me, and uh, I'll turn it back to you. Okay, thanks a lot, Blake. Um, now over to uh, Peter for insights um, uh, for uh, Europe or the U.K. All right. Uh, thank you, Jason. Uh, so uh, first of all, I think the, the first topic that I would like to raise um, is 
precisely that focus on either inflation or growth, uh, because when we look at the two main central banks that we have over here, the ECB and the Bank of England, they currently seem to be focusing on slightly different things. So what do I mean with that? Uh, so when you look at the Bank of England, who actually has raised rates, who has launched the QT program already, um, and has in their recent meetings, again, hiked 25 basis points, um, when you actually look at sort of the way they're communicating, that it seems to me that they're paying much more heed to um, the emerging growth slowdown, and that's that's potentially coming through. Now, in contrast, when you look at the communication from the ECB, who has not hiked, um, who has not really engaged yet um, in any um, quantitative tightening whatsoever, in fact, what they have only said is that they will stop accumulating bonds, they're still currently buying bonds, the, the rhetoric is extremely hawkish. Um, I mean, just this morning we had arguably from one of the biggest hawks and for the first time somebody raising the prospect of a 50 basis point rate hike. So as a result what you're seeing is that um, the implied path in the sterling market is not really rising anymore whereas in euros it keeps rising and rising and that's particularly true sort of in the in the very near term. What we think is at the helm of that is that the ECB is, uh, is behind the curve and they know it and they're trying to up their game um, and what you see is that they're they're also fearing probably that and they're missing their window and therefore trying to speed things up. So that's the first thing I would mention. And it, um, in my last part, I mentioned some trades and it will come um, back to that theme. Now, the second topic, and Jason alluded to it already, is that there is quite a bit of widening pressure in credit markets. And that's um, certainly true here in Europe. Um, and uh, the one thing I would draw out is that um, we obviously have a unique situation in the euro market in particular, where we, apart from corporate credit, we also have sovereign credit. We've seen quite a bit of widening here too. So the infamous um, BTP bond spread has been uh, trading north of 200 at one point. We have recovered a little bit here. But keep in mind, the ECB will stop their purchases. Um, and um, if we go into a rate hike scenario, particularly if it's coupled with a growth slowdown, I think there is further widening pressure here. Um, and uh, I think that's definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, how does that translate into trades that we are recommending? So first of all, the, the first one that I would mention is that we remain? We have been recommending short credit through Y-Trax. Um, we want to remain there. I think the risk is uh, is not over, um, and I think we could see another leg lower or wider here. And that's the first one I would mention. Secondly, um, on the Euribor curve in particular, uh, we think that the more the ECB pushes for quick rate hikes, um, when you look at actually how steep it is compared to the dollar curve, compared to the sterling curve, we think there is flattening potential here. We have been recommending DEC 23 against DEC 22, and we think that still makes sense. Uh, and then lastly, when you sort of look at the two central banks um, that I talked about, uh, sterling and, uh, and the sterling market has outperformed quite a lot. And I think particularly if you look further out um, in, on the curve, I think there is probably something to be said about that recent outperformance. Uh, and there are some trade recommendations um, that look at um, sort of some reversal of that. Um, and with that, I'll hand it back to Jason. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Peter. Um, always insightful. Uh, now over to Adam to tell us um, if it's time to call the top in the dollar uh, at 20-year highs and the best month uh, in seven years. Thanks, Jason. Um, so uh, bottom line for us is no, it isn't. And just putting that into context, um, 
when I was uh, last here with you a month ago, um, we talked about hypothetically about what the impact of parallel sell-offs in bonds and equities would be, and the bottom line being that that is the single most positive background you can have for the dollar. Um, didn't expect that to play out quite as quickly as it did and carry the dollar quite as high as it did. Um, but that essentially, the, the, um, the parallel sell-offs in April and early May is what I think drove the dollar rally. And um, it's not what we assume drives the dollar going forward. So putting that into context, the, um, the dollar rallied in April and early May, uh, cumulatively about 5%, and we have about another 5% in our forecasts, but spread over the rest of the year rather than in the space of a single month. And what we assume drives that is a return to a more normal relationship between bonds and equities, and in FX, a return to more conventional policy expectations as um, the main driver of currencies. And on our expectations relative to where forwards are priced, the relatively short-end um, rate expectations continue to move moderately in the dollar's favor against the aggregate of the rest of the world. So the, the strength of the dollar rally in, um, in April was sufficient to get us clean through our end-year targets, even though we were selling a, a qualitatively dollar-positive story. Um, the market leapfrogged where we expected the dollar to get to at the end of the year. Um, bottom line is we changed those forecasts rather than... Um, rather than going with the flow of the market, and still embed um, an overarching theme of moderate dollar gains uh, broadly into our expectations going forwards. A couple of trades that we like particularly as a way to express that in a relatively medium-term context, um, long dollar yen, where we think that there's been very little, if any, uh, local Japanese in involvement in the uh, dollar yen rally so far, and we think there will be going forwards. So sufficient to buy another leg higher. And then short cable, short uh, sterling against the dollar, where as well as all the short-term cyclical effects we've been talking so much about, there is a valuation argument with sterling sitting right at the top of its 20 or 30-year range in valuation terms on the most important measures of the real exchange rate. So broadly stronger dollar and two, two ways that we like to express that view in a medium-term context. Back to Jason. Okay, great. Um, thanks a lot, Adam. Uh, next up is uh, Amy to tell us about the uh, equity volatility landscape. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me on. So in the options market, things have normalized to a degree. So I think when I was on last month, we discussed the huge disconnect uh, between rates volatility and equity volatility. A proxy we use is the ratio of the move index to the VIX index to look at short-term implied volatility. Uh, that has dropped from an all-time high. Uh, back into its 68th percentile. So the rates versus equity volatility uh, ratio has kind of gone to slightly above average historically over a five-year period. The biggest question we get is why is the VIX not climbing when the market falls off and why has SKU underperformed so much? So several key reasons why this is happening. Um, first, there's just simply less to hedge as the market goes down. And second, investors have kind of chosen to take their ball and go home. You know, we see a lot of degrossing and de-risking, which decreases the demand for hedges. And third, although March of 2020, we did see the VIX touch 80, 
we're actually in a much more uniquely persistent high volatility regime than we were during the pandemic. So volatility has already been higher for longer, and it's very difficult on a go-forward basis to price in more market risk uh, that, that characterizes more volatility even longer than that. So what are the key takeaways from here? The first is one of the tail risks investors see in our position for right now is actually on the upside. So when you have a situation, which we're seeing now, where many investors have degrowth and de-risked, they're actually concerned about if there's some sort of upside swing um, and they aren't participating in it. So, you know, back to the, the flash of the FOMO fears from the past 10 years. And so we do see a lot holding low delta call options, which partly explains the skew dynamics in the market right now. And, you know, upside tails that clients have talked about is if we actually do manage uh, to engineer a soft landing or there's lower inflation rates or a better-than-expected recovery in China or a sooner-than-expected resolution to the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, another big question that I get is if volatility is so persistently high, should we be selling it? And I would answer this question with a big, it depends. There was a recent note where we looked at two uh, groups of companies, and it's got relatively good feedback. The first are, you know, your negative cash flow, highly levered companies that really need to come to the market for financing. So a prime example of this is the situation that happened in Carvana, but others are Lyft, Rivian, Uber, Beyond Meat, among others. Now, obviously, you're seeing very, very high, you know, historically high volatility levels in these, but I would definitely still recommend owning tail protection in them rather than selling volatility. Um, but there are other companies that are very high quality in terms of balance sheet, have positive cash flow, extremely low leverage. You know, a lot of your high quality tech names are on this list, like a Google or Apple or Microsoft. And a lot of these companies are actually doing corporate buybacks which historically does dampen skew. But the argument I've been making is since we're in such a persistently high overall level of volatility, it really doesn't matter that's dampening skew because you're essentially getting a put from the treasury of the company itself. And while yields are slowly climbing, yields still are overall quite low, and the yield that you're carrying from the options market is quite attractive. So if you are going to sell volatility, I would look uh, at skewing these names as opposed to other names. And I'll just say one tidbit about crypto. So during the whole situation with uh, Luna last week, we actually did get a lot of inbound about crypto. And, you know, there was concern about other stable coins like Tether and the fact that they actually hold, you know, real U.S. dollars and treasuries, et cetera, and what that would mean. And it was interesting to me because I do think a lot of hedge funds, which have started to do institutional adoption of digital assets, you know, you're really seeing that when crypto sells off because it is, you know, to some degree affecting their degrossing and their risk there. And I'll leave you with one more data point um, from my colleague Mia on the derivatives desk. When the market is more uh, up more than 8.5% into options expiry, which is this week, the S&P ends up 2.7% up on the week. But when the market is down more than 8.5% into expiry, the S&P is actually down 6.7% on that expiry week. So we're watching this expiry week carefully. Um, but right now, I would say that the skew characterized into this week is still quite low. And I think that, again, is an impact coming from degrossing. And I will leave it there. Thanks, Jason. Okay. Thanks a lot, Amy. Uh, to round out uh, today's call, uh, we have uh, Michael Tran to enlighten us on the oil market. 
Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Look, we remain pretty consistent in our structural bull oil view. And look, I'm sure we're all feeling it at the pump these days with U.S. retail gasoline prices and diesel prices uh, punching in at record levels. Look, oil prices have been really choppy, just like most macro markets out there. But really, let's not lose sight that we're caught in a structural cycle right now in the global oil market where it's pretty hard to not remain constructive over a 6 to 24-month time frame. I'll highlight a few major uh, oil market themes here that really weren't some deeper thought. Uh, first on price, when you think about some of the short-term biases out there, that's led a lot of casual oil market observers to forget that this global oil market was the tightest in at least a decade or longer, even before the Russian invasion. So let's not make the mistake to think that Russia catalyzed the fundamental framework in fact, I could even make the argument that the invasion may end up deteriorating the sentiment around the path forward because of the FPR, the release from strategic reserves from the government, and the sticker shock of these surging gasoline prices. Um, I think we'd all probably, uh, in the bull camp, rather a slow grind higher than what we saw back in March uh, right after the invasion. Now, Look, if you think about sentiment, liquidity, and navigating some of these major headline risks out there, you know, I, I think we generally think that prices will likely remain volatile, uh, but we have been pushing the $115 a barrel or higher narrative by peak summer for quite some time now because regardless of headlines and policy, the fact of the matter is that the major problem in the oil market is that we've become increasingly tight on both crude and refined product inventories globally. Now, historically, when you have a problem like that, that one is a really difficult conundrum to solve without prices going higher. Now, over the summer, I think the market will be searching for a degree of demand destruction. That's a really bullish framework. The, the second theme is the incredibly tight refined product markets. This is your gasoline, your diesel, your jet fuel, etc. I think what's important here is that, you know, gasoline and diesel prices, like I mentioned, are hitting records at the pump. When you think about a barrel of jet fuel in New York Harbor this morning, that's pricing in at $273 a barrel right now. And the problem the world is facing is that refined product inventories are low across the globe. And since refiners are effectively running near full capacity this summer, the market is effectively trying to solve for or optimize. How do you rebuild inventories? And if you can't do it through increased supply through the refining process, the only way to replenish inventories is the price so high that you rebuild inventories because you hit a point of demand destruction and more barrels get left behind in that way. That's a really, really bullish framework. And I can't say that I've ever seen that set up before um, in my career. Now, the last theme here is um, Russia. Now, despite all the talk about self-sanctioning and not buying Russian oil, the amount that they have sold in March and April are very similar to what they sold pre-invasion. And the loading schedules for what they're selling this month in May are also quite similar. So Russia is still flowing barrels at the same level as pre-war. So all this talk about self-sanctioning to this point is uh, just a lot of virtue signaling right now. Now, what we do know is that the EU is actively negotiating a deal to embargo Russian oil. We do believe that over the course of this year, the expectation is that Russia will have uh, an increasingly difficult time placing their barrels major uh, countries like Germany have already suggested that they'll wean their way off of Russian oil over the balance of the year. Now, um, in closing, I'll mention that we do think that there is asymmetric risk um, with China at this point, 
but we think it's actually to the upside. So what I mean by that is China's been really weak. I mean, data released yesterday showed Chinese refinery runs, which is effectively crude demand, fall to the lowest level since the early days of the pandemic. And the market has been taking it completely in stride. So I think it's tough to see China really getting this much or that much worse at this point. But I think any incremental improvement in COVID, even if it's just, you know, an increase of a couple hundred thousand barrels a day, which is a market tightening event compounded by a market that we already think is going to be tightening into the back half of the year globally. I think that if you follow our work, you'll know that the metric that we use to watch for physical tightness or looseness is Atlantic Basin global marginal barrel. So whether China improves, whether Russia deteriorates or both, we'll see it in the Atlantic Basin marginal barrels in real time. So as the market absorbs these SPR barrels, I think we're going to see a structural tightening of both the physical and the financial market throughout the summer. I expect us to be in a protracted period of stronger time spreads, um, backwardation with um, just strong structure um, over the foreseeable future through the balance of the year. So with that, why don't I pass it back to, to Jason? Okay. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining the call. That'll uh, conclude the May 17th edition of Macro Minutes. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.